0: This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob (music) Ruff. Last week you listened to the equivalent of me reading a phone book. I read to you every call made by the eight people closely connected to this case. There are definitely more people's records that we'd like to have a look at, but those were the eight sets of records that were pulled by the police. Becky's cell phone, the Freedley landline, John, Vicky, Robert, Christian, Javier, and Jacob's cell phones. That was it. This week, I've struggled a bit on where to go next. We need to start moving on to the individual suspects, but we also have looming questions about the cell phones. Ultimately, I decided that it's time to begin breaking down the state's case against Robert and Christian, and the perfect tie-in is the cell phone evidence that was used against them at trial. What you're going to hear today is the trial testimony of FBI cell phone expert Kevin Bowles and cell phone forensics expert Greg Gietti. This testimony was a stanchion of the state's case. They needed to make the jury believe that the teenagers at least could have been at the crime scene or their case would fall apart. This is Season 12, Episode 13, Pings. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to The Dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Require Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus terms apply. All right, as usual, when breaking down trial transcripts, I'm going to share with you the major points in real time and post the actual transcripts on our website so you can read every word if you'd like to. We're going to start with Kevin Bowles' testimony. And as is typical, Direct begins with him sharing his qualifications. At the time of trial, Bowles had been with the FBI for 13 years. He was working two assignments at the time. He investigated matters of public corruption in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, and also worked on the Cellular Analysis Survey Team, commonly referred to as CAST. He explains that part of his job is to identify where phones connected to the cell phone network by plotting out the towers used by the phone. He goes into a lot of his training and then he explains a bit about how cell phones choose what tower they connect to. He says that it's a combination of signal strength and proximity. He says that not always, but in, quote, the vast majority of cases, the phone will connect to the closest tower. On rare occasions, a phone may determine that there's, quote, an attractive tower, and it happens to be slightly further away than another tower, then it could connect to that one. But he continues on to explain that typically if a phone connects to a tower other than the closest tower, it's usually due to topography, like a hillside or a large building that's blocking the signal of the nearest tower, or topography that puts the tower up higher than the rest of the buildings. What the state's doing here is trying to lay a foundation for making it possible for Robert to have been at the crime scene as late as 9.46 p.m., which is the earliest time Becky's body was lit on fire, and still connect to a tower down in the valley at 1023. Next, Bowles explains a piece of equipment used by the cast team called a GAR device, or a Gladiator Autonomous Receiver. It's used to determine the coverage areas of cell towers. Now, This trial took place in 2018, and the GAR has only been in use for three years at that point which means any data collected by the guard device would be based on 2015 or later tower setups, nearly a decade after the murders. By then, new buildings had been erected and the towers went from 2G to 3G to 4G. As Bowles continues, we find out that his services weren't even requested by the Riverside Sheriff's Department regarding this case until 2011, five years after the murders. At that point, Bowles wasn't on the cast team yet. He just, quote, had a reputation with the law enforcement community as being someone that worked with cell phones on a regular basis in his fugitive cases. End quote. He explains that in 2006, he was provided with Robert, Christian, and Becky cell records and the Friedley landline records for the day of the murders. He wasn't given the other four sets of records that investigators had access to. He also points out that, as a general rule, landline records are notoriously inaccurate. He confirms what we already discovered about the home phone. That being that we see calls on cell phone records that connect to the landline, but they don't appear in the landline records. Which is why we don't actually know if Becky ceased phone activity after 7.37 p.m., and we don't know if she called Denny's. As Bowles continues, we learn that the initial investigators didn't request the azimuth data, or sector data, for Robert and Christian's phone records back in 2006. That info would be critical in determining the actual location of the phones. Sector data tells you which direction the phone was from the tower when it connected, which could have been huge in this case. The timeline that I gave you last week required Robert's phone to be five miles south of the Cathedral City Tower in order to even come close to allowing enough time for him to have been involved in the murders. If we had sector data, and say, for example, that data showed that Robert's phone connected to the tower from the north or the east, This entire argument would be moot. No one, not even a cop in a squad car with advanced emergency driver training, could get to the north side of that tower fast enough to even consider the idea of Robert being present when Becky's body was lit on fire. Unfortunately, because the data wasn't requested or provided, the state is then allowed to speculate that Robert's phone could have been to the extreme max range to the south of the tower and try to make their case make sense. As the testimony continues, Bowles spends a good amount of time explaining how to read the cell records. Then the DA begins asking him about Robert's communications with Becky. Smith points out that in Robert's first police interview, he said that Becky stopped by Christian's house on the Saturday before the murders, and that was the first time he had spoken to her in months. He then asked Bowles if that was true according to the cell phone records. Bowles explains that that wasn't true. Actually, the first contact on the phone records was on the Thursday prior. At 1.30 a.m., Robert called Becky, and then that call went to voicemail. And three minutes later, Becky called Robert back, and they spoke for 10 minutes and 38 seconds. The state then introduced Exhibit 258, which I have up on our website. It's a list of all communications between Robert and Becky leading up to the murders. I'll break them down for you here real quick. In the early hours of Thursday morning, really Wednesday night, we see the first communication between the two in the two weeks of records that we have access to. At 1.30 a.m., Robert calls Becky, and it goes to voicemail. She calls him back three minutes later, and they talk for about 10 minutes. Ten minutes later, Becky texts Robert. Twenty-five minutes after that, he texts her back. She texts him again two minutes later, and then he texts her three minutes later. And she texts him again four minutes later at 2.27 a.m., and that's the last communication overnight. Then on Thursday, at 11.39 in the morning, Robert calls Becky, and they talk for three minutes. Then we've got nothing for 12 hours. Then Becky texts him at 11.37 p.m. on Thursday, and he texts her back nine minutes later, and that's it for Thursday. Then the next day, Friday, Becky calls Robert for a minute and 39 seconds at 11.04 a.m. Then she calls him again at 12.24 p.m., but the call's for zero seconds and doesn't show up on Robert's records. The next call is at 12.09 a.m. on Saturday, so Friday night just after midnight. Becky calls Robert from her home phone for four minutes and 49 seconds, and that's it for Friday. On Saturday there's quite a bit of activity. It starts at 5:47 p.m. Robert calls Becky at that time and that call goes to voicemail. Becky calls him back 2 minutes later for 28 seconds. Then Becky texts him at 6:02 p.m., a few minutes later she texts him back at 6:06. He texts her again also at 6:06. Then Robert calls her cell at 6:27. It goes to voicemail. He calls again a minute later. That call also goes to voicemail. Then he calls again nine minutes later at 6.37. This time he leaves a voicemail. It's a one minute and two second call. Becky calls him right back and they talk for three and a half minutes. A half hour later at 7.09 p.m., Becky calls Robert again for one minute and 15 seconds. At 8.01 p.m., Becky texts Robert. They text back and forth for the next 10 minutes ending at 8.12 p.m. And that's the last time they communicate until the 6.14 p.m. two minute phone call that they had the next day, the day of the murders. Just to quickly put all this into context, it went something like this. On Wednesday night, Robert calls Becky out of the blue. She calls him back, and then over the next three days, they talk on the phone eight more times for a total of about 17 minutes. They also exchange a total of 18 text messages between Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. To further put that into even more context... In regards to Becky's typical phone usage, with the two weeks of records that we have for her, she averages 42 points of contact per day with Javier. And that's not to say anything about Javier or their relationship. All I'm pointing out here is that Becky's on her phone a lot. 42 points of contact a day on average with Javier. Now as a timeline, we have Robert calling Becky Wednesday night. After that, they seem to have typical back-and-forth communication between then and Saturday at 8.12 p.m., then, according to Robert's police interview, Becky stopped by Christian's house before work on Saturday. This is when she allegedly asked him to go on the hike. Then, the two have no communication until she calls him at 6.14 p.m. on Sunday. That's about 22 hours later. They talk for 2 minutes and 46 seconds, and they never speak again. She tries calling him four more times and also tries to call Christian, but they never speak. So, Robert and Becky speak for a total of 29 minutes and exchange 18 text messages over three and a half days' time. She stops by Saturday night and asks him to go for a hike on Sunday night. They have no contact for the next 22 hours or so. Then Becky calls Robert on Sunday. They talk for less than three minutes, and that's it. So if Robert was responsible for this triple homicide, it would have been triggered by something that was said during these 32 minutes of phone calls and 18 text messages. Next, we get into location data. I'll provide maps of all the locations discussed on the website. Bowles is referencing State's Exhibit 256 in his testimony, which appears to be a large map of the area, but it's not included in the exhibits that I've been provided, although the same locations are depicted in these other maps. In regards to Robert's phone, there are four main towers that we're working with, all down in the valley. From south to north, there's Tower 745 that's located at 47535 Highway 74, that's the last tower on 74 before you head up the mountain. Then Tower 705, which is at 43500 Monterey Drive in Palm Desert. Then we have 707 in Cathedral City at 69200 Highway 111, and lastly Tower 88. That's the tower that Robert's phone connected to when he checked his voicemail at 10:23 pm. I said it was Cathedral City last week, but technically, as I'm looking on the map, the address of the tower is 70500 Barner Road, and Desert Hot Springs. It's actually located a few miles north of Cathedral City, north of the I-10 freeway. So if someone was driving from the crime scene up toward Tower 88, as they got into the valley, they would connect with Tower 745, then 705 in Palm Desert, then 707 in Cathedral City, then finally Tower 88 in Desert Hot Springs, which covers Christian's house. Now, let's go over the breakdown of the locations where Robert was when he made and received phone calls around the time of the murders, according to Special Agent Bull's analysis. When Becky called Robert at 6:14 p.m., the last time they spoke, Robert was connected to Tower 707. That's the Cathedral City Tower that's located about a mile from his house. Then, Robert calls Christian. He's still connected to 707, and Christian is connected to a tower near his house. At 6:22 p.m., Christian calls his girlfriend Jackie and he's still in the proximity of his house. At 6.45, Christian calls Jackie again, but this time he's connected to 707, which again is the tower right down by Robert's house. So we're tracking pretty good here at this point. Remember, Robert told police that after he talked to Becky, Christian picks him up. At 6.53 p.m., Becky calls Robert again. He lets it go to voicemail, and he's still connected to the tower by his house. And at 6.59, same thing. Robert still appears to be near his house, connected to Tower 707. When Becky calls again, and again he lets it go to voicemail. Robert then calls 411 at 7 p.m. and then Sacred Heart Church at 701 p.m., which again tracks with his police statement, and he's still connected to Tower 707. So as of 7 p.m., it's been 45 minutes since Robert spoke with Becky. He's still in the valley near Cathedral City, and he's making calls to Christian, 411, and the church, and he's ignored two calls from Becky. Here's where we start moving. This is also when I noticed that Robert's text messages are not listed in his cell records. In his police interview, Robert says that at some point that evening, his cousin Marty texted him and asked him to go to the gas station and pick up some chapstick. And that's something that his cousin Marty has confirmed happened. But I looked into Robert's records and didn't see any texts to or from Marty on the 17th. In fact, I didn't see any text messages on his records. After realizing that, I went back and cross-referenced with texts that we know that Robert sent and received because they show up on Becky's records. Sure enough, those texts are missing from Robert's. So unless I'm missing something, that creates a pretty big problem for the state, or at least it should have. They're already working with an impossibly tight timeline if they're going to be able to put Robert at the crime scene. Using just calls, we know that Robert's phone was either off or had no service at 9.55 p.m., Then he checked his voicemail at 10.23 p.m. Therefore, you can't prove that he was in the coverage area near Desert Hot Springs until 10.23 p.m., which creates the problem for him and is where the state's trying to make their case. But if he sent or received a text message any time in between there and was connected to that same tower, it's game over for the state. So let's just say, for example, Robert's cousin texted him at, say, 10 p.m and Robert's phone had service and received the text up near Christian's house. It would be impossible, even by the state standards, for him to have been involved in these murders and be all the way back up there by Desert Hot Springs at 10 p.m. Now, the downside here is that since the texts don't show up on his records, we can't prove that the text from his cousin ever occurred or when it occurred if it did. The interesting part is that if you listen back to Robert's police interview, and compare the things that he says happened to the call log, he's accurate about everything. He's definitely unclear on times, which isn't surprising, but he says Becky called him, they talked, then he talked to Christian, his mom wanted him to go to mass, he called 411, he called Sacred Heart. Every single one of those things are accurate and are proven to have happened. But he also says that Marty texted him after they played paintball and asked for chapstick, at which point he and Christian drove to the AMPM and got some. Now that is incredibly specific, and he's given no reason not to believe those basic beats of his story are true. That text message from Marty may have been, could have been, the missing piece that could have alibied him. Moving on, Sacred Heart Church is in Palm Desert, near Tower 705, and that's the tower Robert and Christian's phones both hit when Robert calls Sam Gayer at 704 and at 7.05 when Becky calls Christian and he lets it go to voicemail. At 7.06 when Sam calls Robert back, they talk for two and a half minutes. Still at Tower 705. And then we're introduced to another tower, Tower number 523. That tower is five miles to the east of Tower 705, right on the I-10 freeway, completely in the opposite direction of Highway 74, the road to the Friedleys' house. Christian connects to this tower at 7.09 p.m. This is the call where Becky's landline picked up for one second. What's important here is that this is an outgoing call. And as we've learned from Adnan's case, and as Bowles explains earlier in the testimony, outgoing calls are the most accurate for location. So, at 7.09 p.m., it appears that the boys are moving east, away from the mountains, towards I-10, which would be the logical route to James Workman's school where they said they went to play paintball. Then at 710, Becky calls Christian back, and again, he connects to Tower 523 on the east side of the valley. Here, Smith has Bowles deviate from the timeline just for a bit to clear a couple things up. Remember, this is the time when we have the four calls from Becky's landline to her cell phone all around that 7 o'clock hour. According to Bowles, these were in fact calls to check her voicemail. He also makes clear to the jury that there was zero phone reception at the crime scene. Then, he jumps back into the timeline, and this is where we get some conflict. At 7.13, Becky's landline calls Robert's phone, and he lets it go to voicemail, but his phone connects to Tower 745. Now That's the tower on Highway 74, a little way up the hill overlooking the valley. The same thing happens again 10 minutes later at 7.23. And that's the last call where Robert's phone had service, and it's the call that the state will use to indicate that Robert was traveling west up towards Pinion Pines when his phone went dark. Let's take a look at what this data is actually telling us. First, the state's theory. Robert's phone connects to 707 while he's at home, He moves south to 705 when he calls the church. Then he's moving west up the hill connecting to 745 as he heads towards Pinion Pines when he loses service for three hours. And honestly, it's hard to argue with the logic. It's not proof, but it's plausible if you only look at Robert's records and don't have his text records to boot. But when you add in Christian's records, the state has some problems here, and no one seems to have caught it. No one disputes anything up to the point of the Sacred Heart Church call, or even the Sam Geyer calls. We all also know that incoming calls are notoriously inaccurate for location data. In fact, Bowles explains earlier in his testimony that with incoming calls, it can be a crapshoot. Those are my words, not his. Which tower that you connect to. He says that what you want to look for is not the originating tower with an incoming call. You want to look for the terminating tower. Basically what he's saying is when someone's calling you, the network is looking for your phone and it will connect the first time that you have any signal at all, which may or may not be the closest tower to you. But if you're on the phone for any length of time, your phone will eventually switch over to the tower with the best signal, typically the closest tower. And that's the tower that you want to look to for location data. But the problem in this case is that Robert talks to Sam Geyer in Palm Desert, then he never answers his phone again. He lets Becky's calls go to voicemail meaning that the fact that it connected to Tower 745 is meaningless. It doesn't mean he was anywhere near it. It just means he could get a signal from it, not even a good signal. And since he didn't answer, there's no terminating tower. So we never get good, accurate location data from these calls, even though the state's trying to use them for location. Now, you might say that that's a bit of a stretch, but we actually have hard data to back it up. Christian is with Robert. No one argues against that. Christian makes an outgoing call at 7.09, and according to Bowles and every expert we've ever heard on the matter, outgoing calls will connect to the tower with the best signal. That's why they're the ones that are reliable for location data. When he made that call, he connected to tower 523, way off to the east and on a logical path back to the place where they say they went to play paintball. So the reliable location data that we get from the outgoing call says that the boys were moving east from Palm Desert, which is in direct conflict with the unreliable incoming call data that indicates that they were moving in the exact opposite direction. And if that's not enough to convince you, let me break it down even further. How could Robert's phone connect to Tower 745 when he's east of Palm Desert? It's a question you might be asking yourself. If he's with Christian way off to the east, How could he possibly connect to this tower way off to the west? To explain, let me just jump back a few licks and bowls testimony, a part that I breezed over earlier because I didn't think it was relevant at the time. There's actually a sixth tower that we haven't discussed yet, Tower 665. So let's back up to the 6.03 p.m. call that we haven't talked about today, but you heard about last week. That's when Christian called Robert after work. Christian is accepted to have been at home at this point, and Tower 88 is just one mile away from his dad's house. But when Christian makes the call, he doesn't connect to Tower 88. Instead, he connects to Tower 665, which is actually a few miles away on the other side of the highway. But listen to how Bowles explains why Christian's phone connected to 665, even though it was further away. Quote, There's a cell tower just north of of the residence that's closer in proximity than Tower 665. However, Tower 665 exists on the top of a pretty large hill. I used a Google Earth application to determine the approximate elevation of that hill, and it's roughly 1,400 feet. That's fairly tall, which is one indication, when you have a significant difference in elevation, your phone may select or find a more advantageous signal from a tower with a good line of sight. End quote. So... For an outgoing call, your phone will connect with a tower that has the best signal, which is usually the closest, but not always. An exception to that rule is when a tower is elevated, creating a clear line of sight. And it just so happens that Tower 745, the one Robert's phone connected to when Becky was calling him, is located halfway up the hill on Highway 74. I've been up to it. It's a great spot to stop and take a picture, because from that tower location, you have a beautiful view of the entire south end of the valley. So what does that tell us? Using the actual science and Bowles' own testimony, we can make a pretty good determination on what direction the boys were headed after they made the calls to Sacred Heart and to Sam Geyer. Since at 7.09, when Christian made an outgoing call, his phone used Tower 523 we can deduce that that tower provided the best signal, meaning, according to Bowles, in all likelihood, it was the closest. Since there were five miles between the Palm Desert Tower and 523, he would have had to have moved significantly to the east in order to connect to 523, approximately two and a half miles or more. Since Robert's incoming calls were connected to Tower 745, which is up the hill, we know that they were still in range of that tower, and we also know that that range would be greatly expanded because of its elevation. So his phone could reach it, but since it was an incoming call, it wasn't required to be the closest tower or the best signal. And lastly, since they were together, we can presume that Christian's phone could have reached 745 as well, but even with the elevation, he still had a better signal on 523, which is why his phone connected to it on his outgoing call. Putting that all together... I am just using the facts that were laid out in this very testimony, and it's my firm opinion that the two boys were moving east towards I-10, in the opposite direction of the highway up to Pinion Pines. We're going to wrap up today with the most important part for the state. When did Robert have confirmed cell service again, and where was he at the time? There were calls made to Robert and Christian's phones at 727, 734, 833, 846, 859, 954, and 955, where neither of their phones were connected to any tower. Bulls explains in his testimony that there are three possible reasons for this. One, their phones were in an area where they had no service, which of course is the theory the state subscribes to. Or two, their phones had been turned off, which is the theory that I currently subscribe to. I'll explain why in a second. Or three, their phones were in airplane mode. And honestly, I'm not even sure if that was a thing yet in 2006, but maybe. Now let me explain to you why I am pretty damn sure that their phones were turned off. It's pretty simple, actually. I've driven all these routes in person, and if my analysis from a few minutes ago was correct, and the boys were headed east from Palm Desert at 710, meaning they were most likely closer to Tower 523 than 705 at that 710 mark. Even if they stopped right then, right at 710 when Christian finished that call, and turned around and headed west, right at that very second, there's no fucking way they could have gotten far enough up Highway 74 to lose signal by 727, the first time we see a call where they had no signal. It's impossible. Tower 745 is a ways up the hill, and they'd have to drive across the valley before they even get to the hill. There is zero possibility in any world you can imagine up where someone could be within three miles of Tower 523, turn around, and make it to Tower 745 in 17 minutes, much less make it far enough past the tower lose signal on the other side honestly i already thought robert and christian had turned their phones off just based on the call logs it looks to me like robert was blowing becky off she kept calling him to ask where he was and rather than deal with the confrontation they just shut their phones off that theory was based solely on anecdotal evidence though but now that i've been through all of this location data it's solidified in my mind they could not be close to tower 523 and then be out of the range of 7.45, 17 minutes later. It's impossible. They did not lose signal. They shut their phone off. At least that's the way I see it. Moving on through the testimony, we see that after the calls I just referenced, where Robert and Christian had no connection, from 7.27 to 9.55, Robert calls star 8.6, that's the Verizon code from 2006 to check your voicemail. This is the big one. This is when we know for a fact that Robert is in the valley. We also know for a fact that at the very earliest, Becky's body was lit on fire at 946. That leaves 37 minutes for Robert to have fled the scene, I believe on foot, to a car and driven down the mountain without anyone seeing him and connected to Tower 88 in Desert Hot Springs by 1023 p.m break that down, we're going to move on to the testimony of Greg Guietti. Remember back at the beginning of Bull's testimony, he mentioned a GAR device, which stands for Gladiator Autonomous Receiver, basically a device used to drive around and check cell service. Guietti works for Gladiator and he did the drive test for this case. And there's a lot more to his testimony and I'll have it up for you to read in its entirety if you want to. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to focus on the 1023 call so as not to overwhelm everyone with another data dump. Yeti is working off of Exhibit 257, which, just like 256, is another map showing service for each tower, and it's, again, not in the exhibit file. It might have been too big to go in there. But he gives a pretty good explanation of what he's looking at. He says using the guard device, he drove around, and the unit checks for tower signal every two seconds. And he compiles that data and analyzes it to determine the exact end to the range of a tower. As his testimony goes on, he references several maps that show the coverage area for each individual tower. I do have those maps and I'll post them on the website. He then goes into some detail trying to describe basically the opposite of what I described earlier regarding the conflict between towers 523 and 745. It's worth a read if you have time, but the reader's digest is that he's using the same argument as me, only in reverse. Basically, he's saying that Christian's phone could have connected to tower 523 as they were going up the mountain because he was elevated as opposed to my hypothesis that Robert connected the 745 from down in the valley because the tower was elevated. The difference in our arguments, and where I believe my analysis wins out, is the fact that Christian's calls were outgoing and would have grabbed the closest tower, whereas Robert's calls were incoming and only had to be able to reach the tower. It didn't need to be the closest. I have one last aside for you before I close with the information about the 10:23 call. I've been told by several people connected with the case that there was no service at Workman School, which is the place where Robert and Christian were supposedly paintballing that night. During cross-examination, Gietti admits on the stand that he included the school in his area of coverage for Tower 88, though he didn't actually drive to the place where the paintballing supposedly occurred. That could be irrelevant if the phones were shut off, but it's food for thought. When I did my drive tests that I talked about last week, I was working off the premise that each tower could reach a maximum range of 5 miles based on the police reports. So what I did is I took a 5-mile radius on a map from Tower 88 and picked a spot that would be the closest route from up the hill, and I used that as my target. But as it turns out, according to Guilletti's testimony and his charts, the range of Tower 88, according to the GAR device, is much smaller than 5 miles. To the south, the direction the boys would have been coming from, only reaches about two miles, which puts the furthest south that Robert could have possibly been at the intersection of Date Palm and Ramon. I plugged that into Google Maps and came up with a drive time of 46 minutes. But as I said last week, that time is in no way accurate. It's assuming you can drive 55 miles per hour in Pinion Pines, which is impossible. Based on my nighttime drive test and the new location I'd estimate you could make that drive in maybe 55 minutes if you're really trucking and being reckless. And remember, we only have a maximum time of 37 minutes to work with. So we're not talking about an issue of seconds here. That's a difference of 18 minutes. And it also assumes that Robert was in a car driving within seconds of lighting the fire. It's assuming that the fire was lit at the far outside maximum range that the experts said it could have been lit. And it also assumes that Robert checked his voicemail at the exact second that he crossed that intersection. The moment that he first could have possibly connected to that tower is the exact moment when he turned his phone on and checked the voicemail. So that's a huge problem for the state, an 18-minute problem. But thankfully for them, DA investigator Ryan Bodmer came to the rescue. Ryan Bodmer testified that he did a drive test from the crime scene to the far reaching area of Tower 88 in 38 minutes and 15 seconds, which gets them a whole hell of a lot closer, but in reality, still one minute too long. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by song.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuff Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Oh, oh,